Welcome to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And we are still on our apocalyptic kick, uh, or at least I should, not not complete apocalypse. I should say apocalypse in film kick. I should be clear about that. We're not seeking the end of the world, at least not yet. Um, and uh, in this in this uh, research, we have come across, and it's actually been referenced in some of our other works. One of like the OG articles that got this conversation started. It's called "The Imagination of Disaster," and it was written um, between 1965 and 1966 by Susan Sontag, um, who plays a very important role in a whole lot of human sciences. But for this case, um, we're going to call her a writer, filmmaker, philosopher, teacher, humanitarian, and political activist. She went to um, UC Berkeley. She also went to University of Chicago, and finally finished up with her her PhD, I believe, at Harvard. Um, and she is, she's, uh, she's kind of famous in the academic world. The New York Review describes her as one of the most influential critics of her generation. The Imagination of Disaster is kind of an interesting article because it's, it's definitely put together earlier in her career, even before she might have been like what we call like a full-blown like activist. And it tries to contextualize this idea, not necessarily of, of just apocalyptic film, but all, all of science fiction um, as a whole. And it contextualizes it's like what we perceive to be the most value laden and attractive parts of science science fiction in film. Is there something you want to add to that, Nick? No, just that like this is one of the seminal works in this area of scholarship, talking about disaster films and science fiction and apocalyptic media and literature and so forth. This article is like one of the cornerstones that people usually start with. Yeah, we kind of went worked backwards, even in our three, three, I believe at this point, maybe four prior episodes on this topic. Um, all of them referenced reference Sontag. So we mm -hmm. decided to go back and, and check it out for ourselves. OK, so she opens this uh, deep dive. I don't know about how deep it's, you know, five, maybe six pages long. But this dive into the imagination, imagination of disaster by saying, we live under continual threat of two equally fearful but seemingly opposed destinies, unremitting banality and inconceivable terror. I'm going to there's more to this quote I, I want to uh, dig into, but I want to stop there. What do you think she means when she says we live under these equally fearful opposed destinies, the banality and the terror? What do you think she means, Nick? Yeah, I mean, it's like absolute boredom or absolute fear, right? The complete destruction of the human race and just the repetitive day-to-day -day, completely boring human existence of modern industrial society i could totally obviously i mean this totally applies to today as well but i do kind of want to contextualize it during her time period within the cold war just a little bit the cold war obviously we understand why the terror would be there everybody's uh, under threat of a potential nuclear fallout or something along those lines but why the boredom um and, and in particular, I want to kind of like reference some of the other uh, thinkers that we've talked about on this podcast before, the Marcuses and the, and the uh, why can't I think of the guy with the uh, stimulus struggle? Oh, my God. It's Desmond Morris. Morris. Yes. What, 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 what about the boredom here? Where, where's that come from about this um, post-World War II, pre-Vietnam era society? Where's the I mean, boredom? this was the, the era of, you know, technological advancement that was revolutionizing, you know, manufacturing and science and so forth. And to use the stimulus struggle, right? Many of our basic needs, if not all of our basic needs were capable of being met mm -hmm. by the technology and by manufacturing at scale and so forth. So it's a complete 
a drastic, you know, quantitative and qualitative change in the way that people were living at the time. Absolutely. She goes on to say it is fantasy served out in large rations by the popular arts, which allows most people to cope with these twin specters. For one job that fantasy can do is to lift us out of the unbearably humdrum and to distant distract us from terrors, real or anticipated, by an escape into exotic, dangerous situations which have at last minute happy endings. But another one of those things that fantasy can do is to normalize what is psychologically unbearable, thereby injuring us, in, injuring, inuring us to it in the one case. Fantasy beautifies the world. In the other, it neutralizes it. So I think that's actually a pretty profound statement for her to open up with is this Mm -hmm. idea that, I mean, obvious, we love fantasy even to this day because it's an escape. That's the obvious reason. The other one, though, that I think is actually more interesting, she says, basically, it inures us to the psychologically unbearable. It it normalizes. It normalizes um, this banality and this terror. What do you think of that? Yeah, by seeing this play out in media in this case fantasy and science fiction right it basically desensitizes us i think to the this destruction that is it was not new at the time but you know from world war ii on right this possibility of the complete annihilation of the planet at not and we're not even talking about climate change but as a result of man-made technologies that's a new thing and so when we see this play out in science fiction films and other types of media sort of desensitizes us to this possibility, right? This reality, potential reality. So let's go a little bit deeper into our arguments. And before I do, I kind of want to reiterate, like, again, like the thesis here, the thesis is that science fiction fantasy beautifies the world on one hand and on the other, it neutralizes it and it neutralizes the banality and the terror of it. So again, I want to restate like that thesis statement that she makes. Okay. Now let's dig into how she's going to evidence this. There's a couple of points that she goes through. Um, I'll start with the first. She says, normalization of the unbearable to socialize us into a new and more dire or more fear-based, less satisfactory existence. That's like her first point. Those are my words, like kind of paraphrasing her. This wouldn't be a like a conspiracy by the creators of science fiction. So oftentimes in our podcast in the past, we've talked about how our storytelling class. um, Yeah, I mean, they're all working together to basically create structures or rationalize our structures around us so that we feel complacent in whatever it is, whatever menial tasks or menial life or lack of freedom that we have. I don't know that that's like a science... I'm almost positive there's no science fiction writer or director or or whatever the video game maker or artist out there that is seeking to um, oppress us through this art form. I don't think there's a conspiracy there. What I would argue though, is that this normalization reveals the normalization of the storytelling class itself at this point in history. What do you think of that? Well, I mean, she says it's they themselves self coping, right? So that the stories that are created and made and then delivered, you know, on mass are the, you know, writers and directors, et cetera, that are coping themselves, you know, with this milieu in which they find themselves, you know? And so the creative process is their outlet. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second part then is the consumptive prop- pro- process by which we all consume it. So it's normalization of the unbearable for consumptive purposes. Again, coping is the key, but in this case, rather than using the creative process, Passive absorption by us, the viewers or the readers, serves the same purpose as it does for the creators. 
Um, I don't know. I, I have a question that I put down here in these notes. Is there a difference? Do you think there's a difference between creation um, and consumption in terms of dealing with, again, the banality and the terror? What do you think? I mean, the process is definitely different for the creator than it is for the consumer. Maybe, you know, it could be argued that the end result is the same, you know, that it's both self-coping, right? By creating these stories, you're coping yourself with this reality. And by consuming them, you're also coping, you know, it's normalizing this unbearable existence, to use her terms, regardless of whether you're the creator or the consumer. Also, it's important probably to note that every creator is also a consumer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although it's true that not every consumer is also a creator, right? Mm -hmm. But everyone's consuming something, you know, all yep. the time. So even if you're, you know, a writer of science fiction novels, you're reading novels and watching films and so forth, you're still consuming. So everyone's consuming, only some people are creating. Okay, absolutely. In her words, moving forward, she goes on to say, science fiction films perpetuate cliches about identity, volition, power, knowledge, happiness, social consensus, guilt, responsibility, which are to say the least, not serviceable in our present extremity. Before we move forward with the rest of this quote, what do you think she means there? They're not serviceable in our present extremity. What does that mean? Like, I, I don't know. And I think she's saying that it's impossible for us to imagine, discuss, you know, see, consume, create these cliches, to use her term, right, about, you know, identity, power, knowledge, and so forth. It's impossible for us to do that in reality, that the science fiction and fantasy worlds exist as a place where these things can play out because we can, you know, world building, we can create the world, we can create the language, we can, as creators of these narratives, do all of these things mm -hmm. that create a quote unquote universe where these things can play out in ways that they can't play out in reality. Oh, absolutely. Okay. She goes on then to describe like the basic outline or format of these science fiction narratives. She does, I want to say two or three of them. I'm only going to focus on the first because the, the, the second and the third are just kind of like derivatives, like basic derivatives mm -hmm. of the first one. So I'm only going to focus on the first one here. So she has this outline and we're going to go through it like piece by piece of, of the narrative. Um, and she is very specific here of the Western narrative. She says, a typical science fiction film has a form as predictable as a Western. One model scenario proceeds through five phases. So let's go through those five phases. The first phase of these stories. And again, the key is that they're predictable. In fact, before I even dig in, why do you, I mean, I guess I, it's pretty obvious, but I still want to hear it. Why do we like the predictable in this narrative? Why do we keep consuming the same story over and over again, merely with like different characters? I mean, we don't want to be too shocked. Otherwise, it loses its function as normalizing, you know, reality. It, it doesn't relate well enough to reality for us to make that connection. I mean, everyone that's listening or watching has watched a film at some point that's just like so ridiculous that it you, you, it, it loses you, right? Like you you don't care about the plot anymore. Yeah. What if the acting is terrible? What it's just completely outrageous. Where you're like, I can't do this anymore because it's completely not grounded in reality. Which is interesting to think about when we're talking about science fiction and fantasy. Even science right. fiction and fantasy, right, are grounded in reality enough to where we can relate to them. And they follow, you know, usually the standard plot lines that are predictable enough for us to be able to connect with them. 
And we hate the ones that don't. The science fiction film that I'm thinking of is the one that a lot of people hated with what Tom Hanks and Halle Berry. I forget what it was called. It's it's only mm -hmm. a few years old. Um, and it was like three hours long. Um, yeah. And there's like different generations through time. Um, I don't know. Maybe while I'm talking, you can Google. I forget the title of it. That one got yeah, a lot of criticism because it didn't follow didn't follow this formula like whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Let's talk about the formula um, that- Oh, this not isn't unique to science fiction and fantasy, right? This yeah, is any no, no, kind no, no, of no. media whatsoever, yeah. And I do want to be clear, yeah, we're not just going to be critical of science fiction writers or science fiction fans here because we could argue that Joseph Campbell's like hero's arc journey mm -hmm. is the same story that's been told all, the world over regardless of like genre, right? That same story we keep repeating over and over again. Um, and that's not unique, again, to any specific time or place. So, okay. First part of the formula, first phase of the formula is that these stories have the arrival of a thing or the thing. Um, she puts in parentheses here, it's either the emergence of the monsters, the landing of the alien spaceship, etc. This is usually witnessed or suspected by just one person who is a young scientist on a field trip. Nobody, neither his neighbors nor his colleagues will believe him for some time. The hero is not married, but has a sympathetic, um, though also incredulous girlfriend. Okay. So that first phase is interesting to me for a couple of reasons before I, I, I shift over to Nick's thoughts on it. The first thing that I think is important is, yes, the emergence of the monsters, like this idea that there has to be a threat. This is, of course, dealing with the terror, but also bringing us out of our boredom, right? The threat represents the terror that we all feel during the Cold War, or even now with climate change, that impending doom. And it yanks us, of course, from the boredom. Um, the idea that it is only witnessed at first, at first, or suspected by an individual, for me, had like religious undertones to me like just like when all of the great religions were started they're always started by an individual that went off by themselves and saw this amazing thing or were spoken to by some prophet or angel or or jinn or whatever this idea that it has to be the first person that comes along that again and i use that i guess that word, I, I use that i misused that word earlier because i want to use it now this person then becomes the prophet the one that is trying to teach humanity about how to solve this impending threat this impending problem whatever it might be. So that's that's one of the main things that I took from this part. The other thing is that it's clearly gendered, especially in 1966, but it's still pretty gendered now. It is a he. This prophet is a he. What do you think? Yeah, and I think that this functions to create conflict, right? Like we have yeah. to have someone personify, some character in the story personify the conflict, right? If we're just watching a film and aliens land and no one witnesses it, what's the point, right? We need someone we can relate to that sees it and then they we live through them right in the story because they see let's say it's an alien ship or whatever right they see the ship land now all of a sudden their life is completely thrust into turmoil and they have to go and tell someone else and be believed and so forth you know what i mean right and some of the some of the some of the shows lean into this some of them i can think of that even come well after 1966 men in black like comes to mind although mm -hmm. i guess that that original first contact wasn't and it doesn't end up being the hero it ends up being like an, an alien that puts on a, a skin suit but Mm -hmm. But it's still kind of this idea, this rural, uh, this rural meeting. Okay. Um, the second phase of these stories is the confirmation of the hero's report by a host of witnesses to a great act of destruction. She says, if the invaders are being from another planet, a fruitless attempt to parlay with them and get them to leave peacefully. The local police are summoned to deal with the situation and massacred. Okay. So in this very second phase, and again, like I said, there's going to be a little bit of wiggle room in some of the specific terms she's using, again, given that that the story um, has continued well past when she wrote this in 1966. And it's been nuanced just a little bit, like, you know, with modern technology and modern ideas through the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and, and on into, of course, 2022. But there's still the same basic formula. 
confirmation of the hero's report by a host of witnesses. So the first thing that the hero has to do or the prophet has to do is um, explain the story. And oftentimes it takes a while for people to want to believe the story of, of first contact or whatever it is until a massive destruction takes place. It's the destruction part that's interesting. Why use the destruction as evidence of, um, of validating this hero's narrative? And basically the story is that no one believes this person, even if there are other witnesses until there's, you know, real consequences, right? Until something happens where it can no longer be denied. You know what I mean? And we need those sacrifices. We need those early martyrs. In this case, she mm -hmm. says it's like local police or whatever. People clearly unprepared to deal with like a massive global threat, right? Yeah. We need those original martyrs to, of course, like obviously humanize the, the aim and also to like realize how big a threat this actually is, right? Yeah, it, up, it ups the stakes. It makes the yeah. consequences more severe, you know? Yep, for sure. Um, okay, so here we go. Actually, I have a note here before I move on to the next one. There's updating this a little bit for modern narratives. I was trying, I was racking my brain um, for like options in which um, this becomes more of a global narrative, although she solves this problem later in her article as well. But have you ever seen The Wandering Earth? I brought it up in my notes. I'm sure mm -hmm. you saw it when you went over them. Have you ever seen that one? It was no, a Chinese film. Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, it's the same, it's the same template, obviously though, now told like uh, for, through a Chinese blockbuster in which of course Chinese astronauts are going to end up being the ones that, that, that try and save the earth. But I do think that it is interesting that the more globalized, um, our world becomes right. Like due to neoliberalism, due to the internet and so on and so forth, that local police or local issues now seem obviously, uh, for the most part is much less inconsequential because the scale, I guess what I'm trying to say is as the scale of like our perception of where we are in the world has gotten much bigger. So has the devastation for like this mm -hmm. form of like, Oh wow, here we're in some shit. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, even if like we just talked about Godzilla, right? Like even that film, it's like a global threat. It's not like it's just in Kansas or something. Right. The other example that I was thinking of is um, Arrival, right? Where the oh, yeah, alien yeah. pods are all over the earth. I forget how many. There's eight of them or whatever, and they're distributed all over the world. Or Independence Day, where like yep. the, they, all the major buildings end up being blown up with the the the, the ship or whatever the, the various ships mm -hmm. they spread out. Okay. She goes on to say the third phase is that in the capital of the country, conferences between scientists and the military take place with the hero lecturing before a chart, map, or blackboard. A national emergency is declared. This reminds me, of course, uh, of the one we keep referencing over and over again. Don't look up where they're like on the news trying to tell the story. And <laughs> it is. It's hilarious. All right. But anyway, reports of further atrocities um, occur. Authorities from other countries arrive in black limousines. All international tensions are suspended in view of the planetary emergency. This stage often includes a rapid mortgage of news mortgage montage of news broadcasts in various languages uh, a meeting at the un and more conferences between the military and the scientists plans are made for destroying the enemy um oftentimes these uh these stories of course are led um by i mean they're made in the united states so the united states ends up being like the capital and kind of like leading all of these conversations um which we could uh, you know obviously argue um points on American exceptionalism and Americentricism and so on and so forth. I don't want to get into those conversations quite yet. I want to talk about this idea, though, of countries coming together, putting aside their differences for a cause. What does this appeal to? Oh, there's so much. Like, it, like Arrival is another perfect example, right? It's actually kind of interesting because they, they work together. They're on and off, right? 
and part of the conflict in that film is what are the other countries doing with their pods? Essentially, have they learned, you know, what we haven't learned yet, et cetera. But I think this is like the, you know, deus ex machina that people rely on in these narratives of, you know, I mean, she nails it. She says all international tensions are put on hold to deal with this threat. It's like Mm -hmm. this, it's like this get out of jail free card where it gives us an excuse to stop fighting with one another along the lines of race and gender and ethnicity and nationality and so forth. And like, Oh, you know, we're all in this together because now there is this new, it's like the ultimate other, right. That everyone can, every human can collectivize and come together to try to defeat. And that's the optimism right there. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. it is, it's the idea that if we just, you know, get outside of ourselves for just a second and something but it's also kind of also pessimistic in a way that it's going to take some sort of globalized, massive, like exactly. earth, earth disaster for us to get over our, 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 our problems. Um, yeah, there's okay. going to be a global threat, right? Though what I enjoy about don't look up is that even the global threat does yeah. not, it's, it's the pessimistic one, right? That even the global threat doesn't help us get over those differences because everyone's just moronic and we all just die. Right. Well, I, I like how it is that I like the fact that that one's a little bit more Americentric because it blames mm-hmm. like U.S. corporate oh, yeah. and stuff like I do yeah. like that. I do appreciate that about that. OK, anyway, the fourth phase, the fourth phase in these stories, which is actually kind of interesting. It, it helps solve some of the, the questions I had regarding the second phase in which I thought it was a little bit too localized. Um, Sontag goes on to say further atrocities take place in the fourth phase. At some point, the hero's girlfriend is in grave danger. Um, before I even continue that, why, why do you think Sontag keeps bringing up girlfriend as like an important part of this? And it is, like I said, this is very, this is a very patriarchal narrative that has been recreated over time. I mean, it's weird. It's like character driven, right? Her version of this is that the hero that witnesses this has to have, he has to have skin in the game. If he's just some loner, whatever, then it doesn't really matter. He has to have, you know, a girlfriend or kids, a family, like parents that need saving, like someone that he cares about a great deal so that he can then be the hero that saves the day. You know what I mean? Right. I'm thinking of John Cusack driving his kids around and what, what was that? 2012? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, okay. We have this to continue with the fourth phase. Massive counterattacks are taken by international forces with brilliant displays of rocketry, rays, and other advanced weapons are all unsuccessful. Those are all unsuccessful. I think that's actually interesting because one of the things that was taking place a lot during the 60s and and probably through today is this kind of um, this very technocratic worship that we Mm -hmm. had here in the modern world. And here, even our most advanced weapons are not going to um, science us out of this problem. I think that's an interesting part um, that she brings up here. She goes on to say, though, that enormous military casualties usually by incineration take place. Cities are destroyed and or evacuated, and there's an obligatory scene where here a panicked crowd stampeding along a highway or a big, big bridge being waved on by numerous policemen. Um, what are your thoughts there? I mean, my, my brain immediately went to the more modern film incarnation of War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise, where a lot of the mm-hmm. scenes take place at that bridge. But mm-hmm. what were you thinking? Yeah, I mean, I think this just furthers the narrative of the global like solidarity, right? Because... We basically, in the story, right, we throw everything we have at the monster or aliens or whoever it is, and, like, it's not enough. And so we then have to come together, really, and, like, you know, put our heads together to think of some solution, you know. Back to killing humanity. Let's tie in one of the later articles. Why do Mm -hmm. we like watching these cities get just destroyed or 
tanks get just eviscerated by, you know, breathing fire monster or something along those lines. Why do we like seeing this mass death? It's mass death. We don't like watching, um, to be blunt, like a Holocaust documentary that, that makes us squirm and it rightfully so. And that's mass death. Why this type of mass death? What's different about these? It's a spectacle, right? I think it's so spectacular that it doesn't actually represent death for us that now we're consuming, you know, the spectacle of death. I forget the author of that book that Kapeva's chapter is from, but it's called The Spectacle of Death, I think was the title of it. It was. Okay. Fifth and final phase of this very generic narrative that Sontag lays out for us. More conferences take place whose motif is they must be vulnerable to something. Throughout, the hero has been experimenting in his lab on this. The final strategy upon which all hopes depend is drawn up. The ultimate weapon, weapon, often super powerful as yet untested, nuclear devices mounted. Countdown. Final repulse of the monster or invaders. Um, my, my notes on this are right off. Uh, like, I mean, they're super predictable. Never mind. Um, we just needed a little bit more time to tech our way out of disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I go on to say in my own notes, like funny how this genre may exist to cope with uneasiness about a dangerous technocratic new existence while also celebrating it um, as the end all solution. So it's interesting that these, again, in Sontag's argument, and and she's not going back on her own word, it's just an interesting op- observation that some of what we feel the reason we both create and consume this type of media is because we feel uneasiness about our technocratic society and us losing a little bit of our humanity. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons. And then in the end, the moral of the story is, oh, well, more technology will always solve the problem. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, like you said here, right, we'll still science our way out of it, even though it's the technology that is creating the, I forget what you call it, the ultimate ultimate banality or something like that, right? Technology is responsible for both that and the terrific horrors. And also technology will save us from, in this case, right, the ultimate destruction, whether that's a monster or alien or whatever, Basically, there's no version of the story where technology doesn't end up saving it. It's still technocratic always. You know what I mean? Do you think, and you already know I'm leading you with this question, but you don't care, um, that this has any real world consequences when it comes to a disaster like climate change? Yeah, obviously. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You don't want to add any more commentary? All right. No, I mean, I think that that's... Yeah. very clear. I don't know. I don't know that it is say. clear. I don't know how many listeners we're going to get from like the others, like different various, there's not like oil executives that are going to come listen to our, right. our episode here. But like, I do think that's actually something that I, I even hear from people that like want to combat climate changes. We just need more electric vehicles or we just need like, mm-hmm. you know, like, no, the answer is absolutely not. You cannot tech your way out of a problem that technology has actually created in this regard. I'm not like such a, you know, I'm not a complete Luddite, I'm not complete anti-tech. I'm literally like on a computer using the internet with cameras and microphones and all that other stuff. But like there is, there's this thing that we we like to call, um, I can't even think of the word right now, uh, balance. I was going to say balance, but it's not balance. I can't think of the term right now. Moderation. Moderation is the, is the term I'm looking for. Um, but we really struggle to moderate. And obviously I would argue that has to do with um, our economic system as well. But mm-hmm. anyway. Um, okay, so we 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 have this these five phases. Let's talk more about now what this means. Like once now that we have this very general trope of how these these movies or narratives go, she has a pretty profound quote. In fact, one of the strongest quotes in the whole article, I think, where she kind of ties it up a little bit. She says the movies are naturally 
weak just where the science fiction novels, some of them, are strong on science. But in place of an intellectual workout, they can supply something the novels can never provide, sensuous elaboration. In the films, it is by means of images and sounds, not words, that have to be translated by the imagination that one can participate in the fantasy of living through one's own death and more, the death of cities and the destruction of humanity itself. So this is such a strong statement because I would argue it's where we see the transition, not just, of course, in this genre, but I would argue all genres of the visual and oral medium and why it's so much more powerful than reading. Uh, we're not going to sit here as like, you know, collegiate educators and say, don't read anymore. That's not what we're saying. But we see why, the, but she's giving us the appeal. Why in this specific case and probably other cases as well, reading is, is going to increasingly just take a back seat because it's not multisensory. What do you think of that? Yeah. And not only that, but like when you're reading and there's studies on this that are fascinating, like you have to do the mental work of creating the imagery yourself within your own brain. Yeah. So it's a completely different experience than just leaning back at the theater and like absorbing what's happening on the screen and coming out of the speakers. Right. Completely different experience, you know, psychologically, for sure. And she's literally saying people like it because the movies are, I'm going to use this word, not hers, dumber. Like they are dumber. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, 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 the novel versions or the book versions, everyone's like, oh, read the book. No matter what, what film. And did you read the book? The book's better. Well, of course it's better because there's much more time and it takes a lot of work, not just for the reader to put these images together and, and, and formulate their, use their own imagination. But it's also the fact that the book can be more detailed and probably more researched. Um, the film isn't about that. The film is, it's about spectacle, as you already said. Yeah, I mean, where the book has depth, you know, in probably, you know, every, every aspect I would I imagine, right. Character depth and the science, like she mentions and like story and all these things, the film makes up for that, at least in theory with, you know, explosions and graphics and noise, right. Sound. I mean, that's what it does. I mean, the only thing we're missing is smell-o-vision at this point. Mm -hmm. We can't smell what's going on on the screen. Um, That's hilarious. I just saw a headline this morning about like smell and the metaverse and virtual reality and stuff where it fits. Yeah, I don't know trying to solve it. People keep talking about it. I'll have to like look up one day what that. Or you can teach me. You can teach me about what the metaverse is. I haven't. We can do an episode on that at some point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's do it. Um, Okay. Uh, but here we, we even joke about it. We really joke about it. I make the joke, even in the notes here that Michael Bay really knows what he's doing. Um, Mm -hmm. it is, it is the most vapid, awful, like just intellectually bankrupt films that are being created, but that that's what we want. That's what the audience will eat up. We will spend millions upon billions of dollars going to watch these films or going to buy these films, um, on our streaming services. And the, and, and I, I mean, it's not even just that maybe we should have done a little bit more research, but now I'm, I mean, the film industry has to be much more profitable than the publishing industry at this point. Or am I, I guess I, I took that for granted, but it, it has to be, no. I mean, I guess I don't want to speak out of turn either, but I would assume so. Like how many books have possibly done a billion dollars in sales as an example, right? There's probably less than a dozen. I don't know. I should have done this before we, 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 anyway, somebody in the comments, maybe Google it and then put it in the comments. But now, now I'm really, I should have done this before we started the episode, but like, I, I would have to assume. I mean, clearly there's it. like yeah, volumes of magnitude, more books than there are films. So if we're talking like overall, I don't know, but no, if we're but talking about like, like now, yeah, over yeah, like the biggest, like, let's say the most profitable book from 2021 versus the most profitable film from 2021, I have to assume that the film wins, right? 
is gaming the happy medium where like, yes, there's like a world that is created by a creator, but then the viewer is not a passive absorber anymore. They're actually engaging in the story and in some cases and maybe open worlds um, yeah. writing their own. Do you think? Maybe. Mm-hmm. It's like a happy medium between the two. Eh, anyway. All right. We got to keep moving though. Let's stay with Sontag. All right. She goes on to cite a number of different film examples that really, um, that really kind of color the idea that science fiction films are not about science. They're about disaster, which is one of the oldest subjects of art. I'm not going to bore all of our listeners and readers and go through all of the stories going back to the ancient world that are predicated on disaster. I'm assuming you all know at least some of them, epics of Gilgamesh and all those other kinds of cool stories of the past. That's fine. We, we know of those. We know of those stories. It is a popular trope in storytelling that predates science fiction, predates film, predates all of these things. Um, and we've already done an episode on why disaster is so appealing to us um, in, desi- in, in society um, based on the Killing Humanity um, article. What I want to talk about, though, is um, the satisfaction that she argues later on that we get from the disaster. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that Killing Humanity brought it out or elicited the feelings that I felt when I was reading Sontag here, when she uses mm-hmm. that word satisfaction. Um, I don't know. Why do you, I guess, why are we satisfied with disaster? Like I, I get that we like escapism and things like that, but why satisfaction? Why use this, this descriptor? I mean, in my opinion, we get to live out the disaster during the film, right? And so we get to be, like you said, the passive observer and live through these characters and these events for, you know, two hours or whatever. And then afterwards we walk out of the theater and our lives hasn't, have not changed at all. Right. So it's like, we get to live vicariously through the characters and Mm. the events of the film and then just return back to the real world, you know? Perfect. Absolutely. Another kind of satisfaction she talks about. Actually, I almost started reading the quote. She says, another kind of satisfaction these films supply is extreme moral simplification. That is to say, a morally acceptable fantasy where one can give outlet to cruel or at least amoral feelings. In the figure of the monster from outer space, the freakish, the ugly, and the predatory all converge and provide a fantasy target for righteous bellicosity to discharge itself and for the aesthetic enjoyment of suffering and disaster. Science fiction films are one of the purest forms of spectacle. That is, we are rarely inside anyone's feelings. Um, I like that. I like the extreme moral simplification argument, mm-hmm. right? And you already kind of talked about this in one of your earlier comments. It it creates an other, like we like othering things. And in this case, this other being even non-human and maybe not even of this planet, it makes it feel so much. It's just easier for us to say, okay, cool. Kill it, kill it, torture it, whatever, right? right. Like it, it gets this out of us. Um, anything you want to add to that? No, I like the fact that she says, you know, we are rarely inside anyone's feelings. Like if you look at science fiction films overwhelmingly, you know, they're not, it's not about what the, the character doesn't have some internal conflict of how they feel, right? It's this journey to defeat this monster, right? Or alien or whatever. I think that that's also one of the reasons that the girlfriend role is important, right? Like I'm thinking of Independence Day, right? And right. Will Smith's wife and son, son, her son, right? It's not his son. I guess it's his girlfriend or whatever. There's a woman in his life and her son. I think it's a son, right? Yeah, like Vivica, Those are really the only feelings he has is like making sure that they're okay. But it's not about his development. It's not about his falling in love with her or becoming uh, the father figure to this kid. Like that's not what the story is about, right? We're not inside his feelings at all. 
It's just that this man cares about this woman and her safety, right? That's and then that's just completely like the Z plot compared to killing the aliens. Yep. The next thing that Sontag does that I do, but I think that that's satisfying because it completely relieves us from having to think about feelings for an hour and a half, which is pleasant, I guess. No, absolutely. Um, I was about to shift gears. I'll keep shifting gears. We can kind of keep this episode a little bit shorter. Okay. Sontag actually shifts gears a little bit from this point, like as we're talking about being inside anyone's feelings. And then of course, how we feel about, um, in this case, like violence, like mass violence. She does make an important comment that I think also was missing in some of the early or later works that we talked about. She differentiates science fiction violence from specifically horror violence because horror films are also popular and also follow very cliche, if not even more cliche tropes than science fiction ones. But she says there's a difference with the science fiction violence. She says science fiction films invite a dispassionate aesthetic view of destruction and violence, um, a technological view. Things, objects, machinery play a major role in these films. A greater range of ethical values is embodied in the decor of these films than in the people. Things, rather than the helpless humans, are the locus of values because we experience them, rather than people as the sources of power. According to science fiction films, man is naked without his artifacts. That last line's kind of fire. What do you think she means? Yeah, 100%. I like that also. Um I mean, that's why it's science fiction, right? It's because it's about technology in some capacity. The characters in those, in those stories, right, and the film specifically need technology to do what they do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a science fiction film. I mean, very clearly, right? And the horror film, she uses that as, I think, the contrasting example because most often in the horror film, it's not about the technology or the thing right? This artifact that the people possess that gives them some power, right? They're real people with real limitations that when they die, it's an actual human being dying, right? Instead of in the science fiction trope, you know, she says, it's not really about the person, it's about their technology, right? The plane gets shot down or the spaceship crashes or whatever. Where in the horror film, it's, you know, Susie died, she was killed by the serial killer or whatever, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The next major kind of like trope she talks about that that's important is the mm, I would say, I don't know, I can't even I I don't have an adjective for it, but basically turning the enemy into the Borg like this, like mindless Mm -hmm. zombie like type of thing that's appealing to us. She says science fiction films may also be described as a popular mythology for the contemporary negative imagination about the impersonal. The other world creatures would seek to take us over or are it or not a they. The planetary invaders are usually zombie-like. Their movements are either cool, mechanical, or lumbering uh, blobby, but it amounts to the same thing. If they are non-human in form, they proceed with an absolute regular, unalterable movement. Unalterable, save by, of course, the destruction. If they are human in form, dressed in spacesuits, then they obey the most rigid military discipline and display no personal characteristics whatsoever. And it is this regime of emotionless, of impersonality, of regimentation, which they will impose on the earth if they are successful. So I argue, at least when she wrote this, again, being the historian here, I'm going to contextualize within the Cold War. This is an anti-communist trope that I think Mm -hmm. that was being imposed by science fiction at the time. Like if these other groups that are emotionless and completely like sterile and like uh, whatever, this is what communism is like, right? Like, and so this is what we're fighting back against. Yet we still see the trope, even though communism is not the same threat. Uh, I, I don't view it as a threat at all, but as a threat that it was to these these movie producers back then. Why mm-hmm. do we still use this trope? Because now it is, it's not just about communism, right? It's about anything that would threaten 
individuality, right? Any collective is viewed as a threat, right? Even like, you know, anything leftist at this point is like the the scary collectivist, like other monster that must be defeated. You know what I mean? It's not just communism anymore. It's anything that threatens the supremacy of the individual. And the best example of this is actually a satire, in my opinion. It is the very famous 90s era satire, Starship Troopers, which uh, if people watched it in the 90s, I think a lot of them took it seriously. Like, this is a really mm-hmm. cool movie about, about killing aliens. Obviously, everyone knows we are not breaking any, blowing any minds at this point. There are numerous YouTube videos on it. Starship Troopers was a satire. I believe the book was a satire as well as the film. It's so over the top in its gung-ho, military, rah-rah, propaganda, us first kind of stuff that i i think some of us in the 90s maybe missed it but it's i don't know how anyone missed it but mm-hmm. i think some people did anyway those of you that have not seen the film it is it's just it's it's basically um over the top satire of every science fiction and military film you've ever seen but ultimately at the end the reason it fits this trope is they end up defeating a hive mind they're defeating the aliens in this case are bugs they all work together like literal insects working as like I don't know, as you might imagine, I don't know, ant colonies or bee colonies mm-hmm. working in terms of like their attempted eradication of the earth. But in the end, they're all under one hive mind. And the goal is to go kill the hive mind. And of course, they do end up going to kill the hive mind. Um, and then in, in in defense of the film, they actually, it, it does paint that hive mind in a, in a very different light towards the end to try and like reveal that this whole thing's been a satire and we should probably question ourselves. But regardless... What do you think of Starship Starship Troopers um, fitting this trope? Oh, yeah, same. You nailed it, I think. I don't need to add. Okay. Um, Perfect. One difference on the science fiction message about human characters, though, in contrast to horror characters, as we stay on this, like, humanization regarding violence and characterization and things along those lines, Sontag adds... He has not been converted from human amiability to monstrous animal bloodlust. Excuse me, I need to be clear here before I I contextualize this or try, I need to contextualize this quote before I describe it. She's talking about the difference between like the human characters in science fiction movies in contrast to horror characters, most notably a very famous trope of the time, vampire films. And of course, it remains famous through this day. She goes on to say the vampire has not been converted from human human, uh, amiability to monstrous animal bloodlust, a metaphoric exaggeration of sexual desire, as in the old vampire fantasy. No, he has simply become far more efficient, the very model of technocratic man, purged of emotions, volitionless, tranquil, tranquil, obedient to all orders. The darker secret behind human nature used to be the upsurge of the animal as in King Kong. The threat to man, his availability to dehumanization, lay in his own animality. Now the danger is understood as residing in man's ability to be turned into a machine. So again, to like reiterate what I was saying as I kind of stumbled through that contextualization, Sontag is making a distinction here between horror genre and science fiction genre in which horror genre doesn't want us to uh, debase ourselves into like animal carnal instinct, um, whereas science fiction is a warning or cautionary tale about going too far into becoming, well, I guess, um, uh, the the Terminator, so to speak. Yep. I actually have a note here that I'll just read um, a comment. I said, whether stripped of humanity due to the ascendance of animality or due to being turned into a machine, the end result is dehumanization. That's what we fear above all because we've been doing it to others, quote unquote, forever. There's a connection to our fear of our individual loss of humanness, i.e. the death of our own humanity and the death of humanity overall. 
Fair enough. So while Sontag's main work here, uh, or main argument, is about science fiction as an entire genre, um, as we've been talking about in the prior few episodes, our fascination, of course, is more not just science fiction, but specifically um, the apocalypse in, in general. And so she wrote this in 1966. Again, we're probably doing this out of order. It is a precursor to some of the other articles we've already looked at. And yet I still want to shout out this last quote, because in 1966, this is this last quote she leaves us with regarding science fiction is kind of a preview of the rise in apocalyptic film that we're going to see coming um, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and of course, through today. She says, the image derives most of its power from a supplementary and historical anxiety, also not experienced consciously by most people, about the depersonalizing conditions of modern urban society. Similarly, it is not enough to note that science fiction allegories are one of the few myths about that is ways of accommodating to and negotiating the perennial human anxiety about death. Myths of heaven and hell and of ghosts had the same function. Again, there's a historically specific, uh, spec I can never say this word, spec specifiable twist, which intensifies the anxiety or better, the trauma suffered by everyone in the middle of the 20th century when it became clear that from now on to the end of human history, every person would spend his individual life not only under the threat of individual death, which is certain, but of something almost unsupportable psychologically, collective incineration and extinction, which may come at any time virtually without warning. Thoughts? Yeah, I underlined that last part because I thought it was fascinating. You know, her point is that every human being has this fear of death, right? Ernest Becker's denial of death and so forth, right? This is the death drive from Freud and everything. This relationship and awareness of our own death. And she says, you know, after World War II, now we're not only living with that knowledge, but we're also living with this new knowledge that at any point, all of humanity could be annihilated. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the as a result of nuclear weapons, right? So we're dealing with now both things at the same time. And she says, you know, this is unsupportable psychologically is his or her terms, right? This collective incineration and extinction. And that's something new after World War II that clearly we didn't have to live with before that point. And I think that's interesting to think about. And then how this plays itself out, you know, on screen and in books. Uh, I think that's all I have. Again, um, apologies if we're working backwards, but again, that's that's why this podcast exists so that we can kind of publicize our research findings on topics we're interested in. And we uh, we started with some cool articles and we worked our way backwards, finding the one that they all cited as kind of their inspiration. And here it is. It is The Imagination of Disaster by Susan Sontag, written in 1966. Uh, anything else you want to add before you take us home? Nope. If you enjoyed that, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.